As I begin formulating thoughts for this podcast today on March 10th, 2022, I've just listened to one of Mahler's great slow movements, the Poco Adagio of his Fourth Symphony. It's music that shows us an impossibly beautiful dream and then snatches it away, replacing it with despair, only to return once more, slip away again, and finally return in repose. This, along with other slow movements of Mahler, has always spoken to me in a directly personal way from the time I discovered his music in my early 20s. The composer Sibelius recounted a conversation he had upon meeting Mahler. The subject was the symphony as a musical form and what it offered a composer. Sibelius said he admired its severity and strictness of form. Mahler countered strongly, Nein, die Symphonie muss sein wie die Welt, sie muss alles umfassen. No, the symphony must be like the world, it must encompass everything. I am sure that Mahler meant just as much his own inner world in that description, his own very personal world of turmoil and ecstasy. The two are inseparable. Today, upon hearing the Poco Adagio, which I've listened to with rapture dozens of times, I had a new unwelcome experience. It was no longer the case that I could listen to the music as I had in the past. It had long been a journey through almost impossible beauty, followed by nothing short of terror. The beauty was still present, but now was overlaid with foreboding. I knew what was coming, and when it came, it was almost too much. I felt the terror directly. Whereas in the past, that feeling arose within the listening experience more as a catharsis, represented within the music, now it was no longer a musical object. It was a direct experience, one I had lived more times in the last two years than I ever wanted to, one that I would never wish on anyone, and one that I would give a lot to anyone or any god that would promise me that I would never have to experience it again. In the next moment, a thought arose with unshakable certainty. Mahler could write this music that conveyed this deadly real terror because he had lived it himself. It involved, as I imagined it, a Faustian bargain. Music that climbed such heights and descended into Hades like that would not be won for free. That kind of romantic formulation, namely that one had to live the art one made, had long been one I pushed back on. Yet what if it was simply true? The reason why it pissed me off when people assumed a musician somehow lived the music he or she created was because it was just that, an assumption on someone else's part. It was problematic in any case. Did someone have to experience the terror and ecstasy to the degrees that Mahler conveyed in his symphonies to get the full experience? Now, considering my own hell ride the last couple of years, which also had deeper moments of ecstasy than I had ever known, I reconsidered. It wasn't that you needed to go through some horrible joy and trauma, but if you had, the music would meet it and match it. I didn't like that, just hearing the Poco Adagio now. What if it was marred forevermore by my own recent trauma? I continue with a quote from Thomas Merton. It is a matter of common belief among Catholics that when God promises to answer our prayers, he does not promise to give us exactly what we ask for. But we can always be certain that if he does not give us that, it is because he has something much better to give us instead. That comes from the Seven Story Mountain, an autobiography of faith. 
Even though he is talking about the Catholic faith, I think there's something there for everyone of any faith. I think that everyone has faith in something, even if they lose it. The genesis of Jacob's Ladder began a few months pre-COVID at the beginning of 2020. I wrote a piece for a mixed chorus which eventually wound up being the penultimate track on the record called Ladder. The text was simple, all once, continually passed around the choir. These were the two first words of the mysterious middle section of the band Rush's song from their 1980 release, Permanent Waves. I did not know at the time that this would become the climax of the record, and that it would also embark me on the most mysterious and at times frankly terrifying journey I've ever taken musically, coinciding with dramatic events in the world no one could have foreseen, and are continuing to take place as I write now. My plans to begin making the record got waylaid, along with many other musicians and so many other people who were planning their 2020. I had booked 10 days at Bunker Studios in Brooklyn, New York, for the month of April. Engineer John Davis, with whom I'd worked on two previous releases, Taming the Dragon and Finding Gabriel, drummer Mark Juliana, and singer Becca Stevens were already in. I was just about to start calling other musicians like singer Timothy Hill and saxophonist Joel Fromm. Then COVID came, and much of the world went abruptly into that first lockdown. The sessions were canceled, and there was no reason to rebook them in the climate into which we and the rest of the world were all suddenly thrown. For a few weeks, I sat on my hands and felt sorry for myself. Then I had a call at the beginning of April from Bob Hurwitz at Nonsuch. He said, Brad, if you can somehow manage to record something in lockdown, something that could be a testament to the time we're in now, we would release it. I was grateful for Bob's trust in me, but felt trepidation. Wasn't that too easy, I wondered? Would it not appear to be taking advantage of a situation to get people's attention? This is always the kind of self-doubting chatter I have to work through in my head. Pretty quickly, though, I thought. Bob trusts me and has given me an opening with no pressure. Let me try something and see how it goes. In the next five days, I wrote what became the suite, April 2020, in one swoop. Now there was the question of how to record it. I live in Amstelfein, Holland, a suburb of Amsterdam. Being a complete Luddite, I've never set up a home recording environment like many of my colleagues have. I had a pleasant memory of recording at Power Sound, the studio on the outskirts of Amsterdam, with engineer and owner Paul Power. I called him to explain my predicament and see if anything was possible. Holland was at that time keeping to the following guidelines. No more than a gathering of three were allowed to congregate outside of immediate family, and a one and a half meter distance between all parties had to be maintained with masks. Paul said that it was possible. We would be a group of three with Paul, my trusted piano technician Danilo Kosugi, and myself. I booked two days, and Danilo prepared the Steinway D in the studio, getting it sounding and feeling great. April 2020 was recorded in one four-hour session. No mixing or mastering was necessary, and the record was done. There was still a day of studio time remaining, though, so I figured, let me try tracking some of the ideas I had for Jacob's Ladder on the piano. And so the record began. 
I quickly discovered that Paul was the kind of engineer who had it all. Not only was he a master of all the old school stuff, mic placement, balancing the large room sound with closer mics and those kind of things, but he was also quick as any young Turk behind the Pro Tools rig, meaning that he could edit and sequence at light speed. That skill would be put into play in the coming months. I called singers Becca Stevens and Timothy Hill in Brooklyn and upstate New York respectively and asked if they would be able to record their parts remotely and send them as files. Becca had a home studio set up and Timothy tracked at Area 52 Studios in Saugerties, New York. Later, Sophia McKinney Askur, a young English vocalist I had discovered through my daughter Ruby singing some of my music on Instagram, would follow suit, recording her parts at Gecko Studios in Wivenhoe, England. Next, I had a conversation with Mark Juliana, whom I already knew would be indispensable on the record. Would it work for him to record drums alone in his home setup in Los Angeles? There was no way we were going to be in the same room at any time soon. What was the proper approach? It was a lot of trial, but in fact not too much error. A basic order was established. I would lay down bass lines with a click track and send those, with very little else, to Mark. I would give him some guidance, but not too much, really just encouraging him to have a go at it like only he could. The results were exciting in a counterintuitive sense. Mark was playing along to fixed bass lines. There was nothing improvised to which he could respond. The end effect was that Mark gave a no-holds-barred performance on tracks like Herr und Knecht and the middle section of Rush's Tom Sawyer in a way that he never would have if he was playing more musically, so to speak, responding to what a soloist had already tracked or to some part writing I eventually added later. It was all on him to get the creative ball rolling, and he had no signposts apart from a bass line and a click track. He slayed it. By this time, I was in contact with John Davis in Brooklyn as well. John, Mark, Becca, and I had already worked together. If I had to guesstimate, all in all I spent probably a total of three weeks in Amsterdam with Paul and three weeks with John in Brooklyn doing a mixture of tracking, assembling, and editing. John has the same multifaceted talent as Paul and also had key ideas in terms of sonics and production that became a big part of the record. I already knew that Jacob's Ladder was going to build on my previous record, Finding Gabriel, in a few respects. For one, it would draw on biblical scripture for its inspiration, most importantly the story of Jacob's dream found in Genesis. But the musical approaches would also overlap. I had scored a gratifying success on The Garden, the opening track of Finding Gabriel, by using a dense mixed choir with lots of voices stacked on top of each other in big polychords. The choral piece Ladder would follow suit. On Finding Gabriel, I had allowed myself permission in one regard. I tracked a lot of it bit by bit, and in order to facilitate that, used a click track. I had to get over some jazz snobbery regarding that decision, but it turned out to be a liberating one. Once the click was in place, there were all sorts of things that became easier, for example regarding MIDI that we used to sync up a synth arpeggiator with the rest of the track, especially if it was in an odd meter. Yet Finding Gabriel nevertheless had as its base performances that began with Mark and I in a room together in real time. We were building on the kind of improvised interaction that we achieved on Taming the Dragon and in live performances. 
So that was my plan for Jacob's Ladder. Mark and I in the studio laying down the fundament in real time and then building from there much like Finding Gabriel. Alas, that was not the case, but when the album was finally done, what the listener has before them is something I can get behind, because it led to a different record that I could never have envisioned ahead of time. Once I got over the initial doubt in a recording that would have virtually nothing tracked live, there was a liberating factor, namely, that now we could jump full throttle into this more quote-unquote artificial kind of production and go bonkers with it, exploiting it in every which way. At the end of the day, there are only two performances which were tracked live. Beck and I on Gentle Giants, Cogs and Cogs at Bunker Studios, and Luca von den Bosche and I on the first verse of Yes's Starship Trooper at Power Sound. Jacob's Ladder had another element that was already weaved into the writing of Ladder, namely a number series that I used throughout the record to generate composition and arranging. The bells you've been hearing so far are that series realized in notes. I will now endeavor to explain a bit of it. It's often the case that a record begins with some kind of nebulous vision of a theme, but not much beyond that. As I begin to write, the vision gradually comes more into focus. That is, in its onset, a mostly formal vision tied to an idea that hovers above it. It may be an extra-musical idea, as in the case of Jacob's Ladder, or may simply be a musical motif, or some mix of both. As the writing progresses, the idea begins to guide that writing, and more mysteriously, it guides the form in real time. That is to say, the form reveals itself in the content as it is written. For Jacob's Ladder, I had two broad ideas. The first was to make a record that would somehow pay tribute to progressive rock and build on it further, and the second was to connect that to the spiritual searching I had been busy with the last several years. Bands like Rush, Yes, and Gentle Giant, whose material I would interpret, were an indelible part of my musical development during my youth, beginning with hearing Rush's Tom Sawyer on the radio when the record came out in 1981. I was 11 years old at the time. In the next two years, I discovered Yes, Gentle Giant, King Crimson, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I was first a fan of those bands. I believe that in order to internalize an influence in any meaningful way as a musician, one first must fall in love with the music unconditionally. I was not aware of it, but many of the gestures of Prague would seep into my own musical personality. Jazz influences would predominate in the coming years, but Prague was more of a turning full circle. It began to manifest in music I made with Mark Juliana well into my 40s on tracks like Just Call Me Nige from our first record together, Taming the Dragon. If I had to name my top three Rush records, they would be, in order of release, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, and Moving Pictures. Permanent Waves, which came out in 1980, has a long song that ends the first side of the LP called Jacob's Ladder. My idea now presented itself. I would find a way to use the story of Jacob's dream of a ladder to heaven in Genesis chapter 28 verses 10 through 19 and link it with the Prague idea. The portal, so to speak, would be Rush's song. I began to write ladder on this basis with plans to somehow tie my choral piece to a cover of Rush's song. I had already chosen three other songs to interpret, Tom Sawyer from Rush, Gentle Giants Cogs and Cogs, and Starship Trooper from Yes. The passage in Genesis tells the following story. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. 
And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants, and your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And by you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth bless themselves. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done that of which I have spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. For my record, I began to imagine a way I could illustrate the latter in musical terms, perhaps through some kind of number series. The Fibonacci numbers were an obvious example. The series begins either with zero or one, as one wishes. From the number one, you add one and get two. You do this once more and then arrive at three. From there, you start to increase the amount you add by whatever the product of the last sum was. So, three plus two is five, five plus three is eight, eight plus five is 13, 13 plus eight is 21, 21 plus 13 is 34, 34 plus 21 is 55, 55 plus 34 is 89, 89 plus 55 is 144 and etc. The Fibonacci numbers have held people's imagination for so long because they suggest evidence of intelligent design. They play out not just in many other mathematical applications, but when graft appear in nature, like the way leaves are arranged on a stem or the way an artichoke flowers. For me, being devout, this is the kind of quote-unquote evidence I find in music, for instance, in the harmonic series. It is not just to say that there is some meaning and order under everything that we discover already in existence, antecedent to us. It is more that this meaning and order is beautiful. I would go one step further and say that for me it is teleological evidence not of just some divine presence, be it omnipotent and above us, or pantheistically, within us and all of nature, but one that is full of mercy and, in the case of Jacob, guidance. A God without mercy and guidance is not one I warm up to. I had not studied up on the Fibonacci numbers, though, when I had the idea of using them for my record. I had some vague idea that they operated on a recurring pattern of addition, but not much more than that. Here was my approximation, really nothing more than a guess. I began at the number 3, most likely because I had remembered the Fibonacci numbers starting there. 3 plus 1 is 4, 4 plus 2 is 6, 6 plus 3 is 9, 9 plus 4 is 13. 13 plus 5 is 18, 18 plus 6 is 24, 24 plus 7 is 31, 31 plus 8 is 39, 39 plus 9 is 48, 48 plus 10 is 58, 58 plus 11 is 69, 69 plus 12 is 81, 81 plus 13 is 94, etc. The pattern thus being that the number added to the previous sum would increase by 1. And so I began to use this series to write music for Jacob's Ladder, which I will give examples of later. Now, of course one gathers that this was not at all the Fibonacci sequence I had guesstimated, and had nothing in common with it beyond a recurring principle of addition with each subsequent product. I was to realize this only well into using it in the composition. 
It was, happily, I discovered later, thus too late to undo what I had written and somehow reapply the Fibonacci numbers proper into Jacob's Ladder. This was a happy accident, namely, because the Fibonacci numbers, when graphed, do not create anything resembling a ladder. One of the most easily approachable applications of the Fibonacci series was the spiral pattern created by drawing circular arcs connecting the opposite corners of squares on a graph, called Fibonacci tiling. I took note. I would eventually graph my series somehow, and it would become the cover art of Jacob's Ladder. Nevertheless, for the moment, I realized that my accident was good in this regard. If I had used the Fibonacci numbers proper, I would have never found something akin to a ladder, but quite different, namely a spiral that wound its way further inward. Several months after the record was completed, I returned to the sequence, mostly for the reason of trying to remember exactly what it was, but also with an eye towards graphing it. I had conceived it rather quickly and made some notes in a notebook. Now I had to retrace my steps and figure out what was so special about it, if anything. There were several appealing points of quote-unquote evidence of some greater order in my sequence, namely in the way that pre-existing numbers reappeared in subsequent equations in one way or another, often in reverse. Considering the sequence up through the number 94, which is as far as I went in using it for composition and arranging, here are the sums, including the three that begins the series. 3, 4, 6, 9, 13, 18, 24, 31, 39, 48, 58, 69, 81, 94. I noticed a few things. 13, the fifth number in the sequence, contains the numbers of the first equation, 1 plus 3. 31, the eighth number of the series, contains those same two integers in reverse order. The ninth number of the series, 39 furthermore, is 13 times 3, again using those beginning integers. Continuing. 24, the seventh number of the series, contains 4 plus 2, the addition to arrive at the fourth number of the series, 6. 81, the thirteenth number of the series, is the reverse of 18, the sixth number. 31 and 81, the eighth and thirteenth numbers of the sequence, are the reverse of 13 and 18, the fifth and sixth numbers. The number I stopped at, 94, is obtained by adding 13 to 81, and if you add its two digits, 9 and 4, you get a sum of 13, which is also the fifth number of the series. 9 and 4 are also the fourth and second numbers in the series. Finally, the majority of numbers are multiples of 3. 3, 6, 9, 18, 24, 39, 48, 69, and 81. What did any of that add up to? Were these simply coincidences? Would any number series lead to another set of equally robust observations regarding repeated integers and common multiples? Here I say, it is just as improvable to say that a coincidence is a rationalization of our ego mediated by our own volition, by what we want or don't want to believe, as it is to say that there are no coincidences. I choose the latter. It goes back to my belief in God, or more to the point, the nature of that belief. If one says, there are no coincidences, one might be accused of signing on to a deterministic outlook. Yes and no. To explain my position, allow me to digress for a moment and consider the role of free will. 
which is the title of the song right before Jacob's Ladder on Rush's Permanent Waves and has one of rock and roll's nastiest guitar solos ever from Alex Lifeson. Let's say I find a $20 bill on the floor of a hotel. I should hand it to someone at the front desk, but I want to keep it. I alone decide. Free will is considered a unique feature of our species. It is championed and cherished by the humanist who holds that we can think for ourselves. We are not cowed by religious authority or ruled by mere instinctive drives. We make our own choices through a process of reasoning, critical thinking, and uniquely human emotions like empathy or envy. Behind these choices, there often lurks a should question, as in the case of the $20 bill. That question figures directly into Abrahamic religion in one of history's great mediations on free will, the story of Adam and Eve. Religion and science both profess skepticism towards free will from two very different poles, one based on faith, the other based on materialistic observation. Both the devout religious practitioner and the physicist admonish the humanist, effectively saying, don't be so sure about your will, it's not necessarily yours at all. The devout and scientifically minded alike invite us to confront the boundaries of our human perception. This fosters humility in both cases. As the believer moves closer towards God, he steadily relinquishes the prideful conviction that he is running the show. As the scientist gains more knowledge of the universe, she realizes the limits of her knowledge. Humility deepens with the profundity of religious faith or scientific insight, or indeed both. Consider our severely limited perception from the perspective of classical physics. Our knowledge of the atomic configuration of every atom in the universe, or even a grain of salt, is hopelessly coarse. We deduce information in big chunks about the macro-state of the universe, but do not have the tools to observe its many microstates. If, though, we could somehow know the location and momentum of all those atoms in a given moment, like a god, one might say, we would then be able to quote-unquote reverse the tape and account for each former configuration exactly. In effect, we could view the past as far back as time goes to the origin of our universe. This is impressive, but more unsettlingly, the process works the same way going forward in time, which means that if hypothetically we had knowledge of the universe's microstates, we could effectively predict the future. We can already see how this deterministic outlook from physics shakes up the notion of free will. We can already see the proximity of science and religion in at least one sense. Both claim an ability to prophesize whether their adherents succeed or not in praxis. Furthermore, the idea of a time-symmetrical process that behaves the same in forward or reverse does not correspond at all to our everyday perception. Most of what we observe in our world becomes nonsensical when it is reversed. Imagine any event played backwards in time. For instance, uneating a sandwich until it is whole, or undying and eventually shrinking back to an embryo. Time moves only in one direction for us forward, originating from a point in the past, through the present moment, and onward toward the future. This phenomenon is called the arrow of time, an idea formulated by astronomer Arthur Stanley Eddington. We experience the past as determined, and we do not know the future, even if it feels determined at times. This would seem a given, yet does not correspond with classical physics. Physicists have surmised, problematically, that our experience of the arrow of time is caused by entropy. It was German physicist Rudolf Clausius who constructed the term to describe the dissipation of heat in a thermodynamic system. We could think of a few examples, a person burning calories or an airplane burning jet fuel. In both cases, some heat is used for work, 
running on a treadmill or traveling across the ocean, for example. But some heat is also lost inefficiently and dissipates. Entropy began as a theoretical measurement of that wasted heat. Clausius's work led to the second law of thermodynamics, which states that entropy will always increase over time within a closed thermodynamic system. The flame under a kettle heats water, which makes the water molecules move steadily faster. With the increased velocity of movement, more configurations become possible, that is, more microstates. We cannot possibly observe and account for all of those possible molecular configurations, but based on what we know about the macrostate, we can measure the degree of what we don't know about the microstate. Subsequent physicists formulated how to do just that through statistical mechanics, most notably Ludwig Boltzmann, who invented a logarithmic equation to express entropy. A broader application of entropy, then, is the measurement of disorder or randomness within a system. That randomness could be found in anything from the whole known universe or something much smaller. An often used example is an egg that begins in a lower entropy state in its shell, but is then cracked, creating more entropy. I often think of the disorder of my children's rooms when they were younger, which would start out clean and become disordered in a woefully short amount of time. The entropy would go up as my kids spent time in their room littering the floor with their clothes and toys. There were many more ways for the room to be a mess than there were for it to be clean. Josef Loschmidt next raised the objection that the irreversibility of the second law of thermodynamics does not square away with the irreversible process of Newtonian physics. We never observe an egg by its own accord returning to its whole state once it has been cracked. This is an as-of-yet unresolved conundrum for physicists. The so-called past hypothesis explains our experience of the arrow of time through entropy, but it is at paradoxical odds with time symmetry. If the determinism of time symmetry does not square away with entropy, it might also unsettle one's certitude in free will. It might seem that our whole notion of volition is misguided. It stems from a limitation, not a supposed freedom. We are not really deciding anything. We seem ignorant in this view. Perhaps there is a connection between entropy and that ignorance. The arrow of time is our limitation, much in the same way I imagine that we are limited compared to God, for whom there is no arrow of time. In any case, using the number series to write Jacob's Ladder was a mediation between my will and God's will. The arrow of time was pushing me forward. There was a certain amount of entropy involved, meaning that with each musical decision I made based on the macrostate of my music, I left the rest, the microstate, in God's hands, and strange things began to happen. as I've come to experience them, are a meeting point between the divine and my own consciousness. And like all mystical experiences, the division between the divine and oneself vanishes. So I understand Jacob's dream to have sprung from his own consciousness, but also mediated through it, and God spoke to him there. One could say it was just auto-suggestion on Jacob's part. This is what a lot of atheists say about religious experience more generally. So be it. You know what you know. For me, the process of using the latter numbers was the same. They had their own transcendental status in the sense that they were an object outside of me with its own structure, 
one that guided the composition's form and content alike. But then they started to meld with my own writing. It was not as if I didn't use the craft I already had to begin with, but at a certain point, the music started to write itself. It was indeed my own voice, but it was music that I never would have written. Oh. 